Oh. Excellent. Josephine, how you doing? start with a prayer. Lord, we uh, pray your, uh, that we recognize your hand in our lives. And uh, that tells us a lot. It's almost everything right there, just for us to know you're there and that you're leading, you're guiding. Help us in our failures, our struggles. Be with the volunteers and people who have dedicated themselves uh, to keeping the show going. And uh, be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Every now and again, we get people who uh, tap into the show and they come to believe because they hear things that bug them, that uh, it's up to them to straighten us out. And uh, I enjoy getting their emails because they're all alike. It doesn't matter if they are LDS, Catholic, Calvin, whatever they are, their methodologies in approaching us through emails are very, very similar with some slight modifications, but they all start off as being very above board, very uh, erudite, very level-headed and of good intention, very polite always. And there's always a very polite intro, dear brother, and there's always a very polite exit, in God's holy name we trust and pray. Every, but in between, in between, there is a seething, kind of accusation, a distrust, and more, more than anything else, a need to correct and challenge. And it's so predictable that I've kind of become inclined to believe that the world is made of two different types of people. There are people who seek to, to teach, and there are people who seek to challenge. It's, it's almost one or the other. Uh, present ideas or critique ideas. So... With regard to the latter, many write emails. Our latest is from a man named Michael. He's out of Long Island, New York. And in his first email, he had some things to say about my using Chomsky and his insights. This is what the email said. Hello, Sean. I watched your show and presentation of Noam Chomsky's ideas. His expertise is in linguistics, but his passion is the spread of socialism, which is communism light. A socialist is a communist without a gun, but policies of socialism end with a gun pointed at you. 
The policies of communism begins with a gun pointed at you. Begins with a gun pointed at you. So at this point, we have to thank Michael for teaching us about what the differences are between socialism and communism. But not only that, but for trying to build an immediate prejudice against a guy whose ideas I am using to critique institutional religion. And I want to point out that this assessment of Chomsky is unfair and it's single-sided. And while he may, in some people's opinions, lean toward elements of socialism, uh, it is for this very reason I am appealing to Chomsky. Because if religion should be anything, it should be more inclined towards socialistic, even communalistic uh, uh, life, rather than capitalistic, you see? So ultimately, we're going to show what Chomsky is talking about. While he may be off his mark when it comes to economics and policy, he is, his principles are perfect for critiquing the religious institution, which should be communalistic. It was in the early church. Should be socialistic, at least. I'm not talking about our capitalistic economy. That's for all you economists to decide and your politicians. But I'm talking about in the church, there could not be a better person to take their principles and apply than Chomsky. Back to the email, quote, the religion you, Sean, seem to promote is Christian relativism. A, quote, what's true for you is not true for me and what's true for me is not true for you approach. I could be wrong, but that's what I see. Brother Michael, you are wrong. Absolutely, and this is something I've tried to reiterate over the course of doing the show and talking about subjective Christianity, but I stridently maintain that there is objective truth. Absolutely. Uh, but the one who owns it and knows it is God. And so it's incumbent upon believers to seek God in spirit and in truth to discover his objective truths. Um, but because we are human, we only can approach it subjectively. And so we must live by patience and long-suffering with each other until we see clearly his objective truth. So I don't believe truth is by any means subjective. I believe that truth is singular and objective and God is the author and owner of it and he has a handle on all of it and we are ambling around trying to get pieces of it to make it make sense in our limited ways. Therefore, dogma cannot enter nor denominational claims simply because there are tens of thousands of believers in each camp that differ with each other who are great believers and followers of Christ. So no, Michael, you have heard what you wanted to hear from me, that I am preaching a gospel of relativism. That's absolutely not true. Uh, but I am preaching that until we see clearly and not through a glass darkly, that we ought to give people the benefit of the doubt when they say Jesus is my Lord and Christ, my Savior, my God, my King. I follow him. He's where I obtain salvation by my faith in him. We ought to back off on all the differences. Michael continues, the email says, many people believe in an invisible church, but Christ said that he would build a church, Matthew 16, 18, and it would be like a city set on a mountain for all to see, Matthew 5, 14. 
Now, I'll stop here. Matt, Matthew has a right to his view on things and how he likes to see Scripture. But uh, he, what he's doing is he's taking Scripture literally and exclusively. It's a trick. Not a trick. It's a method that many people who are out to defend their position do. They take an exclusive Scripture, they apply it literally, and they just go through Scripture, and what they do is they construct for themselves a, a, a mode or system of belief. And notice that he excludes that Paul says that the church is spiritual. And it's, it's, it, we are believers, and we are uh, part of a temple not made with hands. And we could go on and on and on with other references that talk about... So when you have passages that talk about something being spiritual, and then you have Jesus saying that he will establish his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, we have to decide, was Jesus talking about a material church or was he talking about a spiritual one? And I think the answer is clear. It was spiritual all the way. But Michael goes on, he says, Jesus also said to appeal to the authority of the church when in dispute. That's Matthew 18, 17. An invisible church is like a candle hidden under a bushel, Matthew 5, 15. Plus, listen to this, Jesus promised to be with his church, listen, he writes, until the end of time. Okay, that's Matthew 28, 20. And so then he concludes, so this church still exists. And what Michael has done is he's read the scripture in English, and because the King James, or whatever translation he's using, says that he will be with the church till the end of the world. Uh, all you got to do is look at the Greek and it's till the end of that age. And it's very clear, but Michael has read the English, interpreted it through English reading eyes and has then reinterpreted it back out without taking the time to look at what the scripture is really saying. He adds the following. This is interesting to me. I understand, I'm going to add Sean there, how the negative example that you see with the LDS church could give you a negative view towards hierarchical church and how that would cause someone to reject all brick and mortar churches. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus did indeed establish a visible church that has a hierarchy. And then he quotes Ephesians 4, 4 through 16, which again, we could go into that and that does not support at all what Jesus did, but the real intrigue of this is that I wrote back to Michael and he's a Catholic. So we have a Catholic here. He is saying, I understand, Sean, how the negative example that you see from the LDS church would give you a negative view towards hierarchical church and toward brick and mortar churches, but that doesn't change the fact that Jesus did indeed establish a visible church and it's mine, the Catholic. That's a, it's a, and it just proves my point perfectly. We are forever going to be doing this until guys like Michael see that uh, it's not about the religions and their doctrines and dogmas. It is about Christ Jesus. Michael concludes, then he does typically what uh, writers do. He concludes with a, it's, it's, it's kind of a warning, he says. Don't lose your zeal for Christ, Sean. I fear that your relativistic approach that you're taking may eventually lead you to atheism. After all, if truth is relative, what's the point? Well, I've made it clear that I don't believe truth is relative, but what really, really, really irks me is that 
what he's implying is that he starts off by attacking Chomsky. And what he's saying is that if you start listening to somebody who has socialistic leanings, even maybe even communistic leanings, which is there's an implication that that guy has nothing good to say at all anywhere about anything. I mean, he can't even uh, give an opinion on what soup is good because he has those leanings. And the conclusion is, if you keep on that road, you are going to lose your zeal for Christ. Um, it, 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 why do we do this in the faith? Why do people do this? Why do we appear, uh, appeal to fear-mongering? And when it comes to people who, and who have divergent thoughts and approaches and the incorporation of concepts uh, from others, uh, even people who have concepts that are different, God forbid, on economic policy or political uh, policy. I mean, you quote somebody like that, and if you find out that they're not a right-wing capitalist, by gosh, I fear that you're going to lose your zeal for Christ. You know, I understood and I read Chomsky before I knew Christ, and all the other radical thinkers that I've considered, as well as the conservative thinkers, Robert Bjork and, and others, and I appreciate all of the views, because where there's truth, there is truth. Um, when will believers be so confident, so rejoiceful in trusting the living God that they will listen to every idea that comes down the pike and consider it like the Bereans and then test it by scripture to see what holds water? Instead, we walk around segmenting society and block ourselves off to things that can be so beneficial. Michael really st struck a nerve with me because he is suggesting that because uh, Chomsky is different than he is, that he couldn't have any merit or, uh, in the discussion of religious issues. And it's prototypical uh, fear-mongering. Let me remind you, Michael, that um, Christianity is a faith that is not owned by Americans. It's not owned by capitalists. It's not owned by the right wing or the left. It is not owned by any ism or ist. It is the faith of a man who came and died for us and saved us from and in our sin. And we look to him no matter who we are, a Maoist or, or whoever. And we look to him as the source of our salvation. That's what Christianity is. And with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. This from the Word's a little bit heavier, but I think you're going to get it. It's also based off another email from our friend from Long Island, New York. Uh, not being satisfied with regarding Chomsky, relativism, and my losing my zeal for Jesus, Michael sent the following. Hi, Sean. In regards to the claim that the church age, listen, with its authoritative ministerial priesthood, ended in the days of Jesus, have you ever considered what it says in the book of Jude? And then he tells us, in Jude 1.11, he warns about those who follow the example of the rebellion of Korah. Korah's rebellion is mentioned in Numbers 16, 1 through 40. Korah and his men rejected the authoritative ministerial priesthood of Aaron and insisted on there being only 
the universal priesthood of all believers. God destroyed Korah and 250 of his followers by sending fire to consume them. Jude's warning is to those Christians who reject authoritative ministerial priesthood that Christ established and which was passed on by prophetic word and the laying on of hands. And he gives several references. The authoritative ministerial priesthood needs a church in order to exist. Regards, Mike from Long Island. So, in our From the Word, I'm going to try to break this down. Uh, Mike has made a number of assumptions in his question, and if people aren't careful, it's this type of thinking that you have to sit down and say, okay, let's go through and let's just really look at what he's saying and let's look at what the Word says. What is he saying? What does the Word say? Because if you just sit back and say, wow, he sounds like he knows what he's talking about, you just give up, wave the white flag and go with an authoritative ministerial priesthood on the earth and it sounds right and okay, I'll be a Mormon or a Catholic. Mike begins with in regards to the claim that the church age with its authoritative ministerial priesthood ended in the days of Jesus. Have you ever considered the contents of the book of Jude? Uh, Jude. Here is Mike's premise for writing, restated by me. Sean, you propose that the church age that Jesus established, and Mike says that has an authoritative ministerial priesthood attached to it, ended in the days of Jesus, you ought to look at the book of Jude. So let's be clear so we can remain clear. Let's start off. An authoritative ministerial priesthood was not part of the church Jesus established. Okay? Uh, You have to understand that from the very beginning, uh, this is a false premise to begin with. In fact, nowhere in the true New Testament, when I say true New Testament, I mean from Acts chapter 10 all the way through to the end of Revelation, uh, is the word priest. Now, if there was a priesthood, we would be talking about priests. You only find the word priest in Acts and the book of Hebrews. And it's all almost always connected. It's never connected to, the word priest is never connected to an individual. It's almost always connected to high, high priest, high priest. That's the way it's used. It's speaking of one individual. Why? Because in Christ's church, there was no authoritative administerial priesthood going on. And, And this is his first problem. He's already shot himself in the foot with that assumption that Christ has had a church and there was an authoritative ministerial priesthood that he and his apostles had and they passed it on to others who would become priests. Because if you're operating with a priesthood, you would be a priest. But the word is not used in scripture, New Testament. The only authority that was present in the nascent church that Jesus established was in the hands of him, which he got from his father and was then given to his apostles. He gave them specific authority. He trained them. They were witnesses of his miracles. And he said, go out into all Judea and go out and warn everybody and teach them the gospel. They had the authority. What they said on earth would be bound in heaven and what was bound on earth would be done in, on earth. And so I make this clear to present a few things. Jesus established a church And he promised he would come back and save it from impending doom. 
that church was apostolically led until the end of that age when that was fulfilled. Once the last of his authoritative apostles, John, the beloved, either died or was changed in the twinkling of an eye at the destruction or lived to a ripe old age and died, we don't know. But remember in Matthew, uh, uh, Jesus told uh, Peter, well, what if he stays until the end? What is that to you? So whatever it was, John was the last. Once John died, that uh, uh, apostolic authority is gone, dude. There's no more apostles. In fact, even the Catholics don't have apostles. The only ones who have the apostles are the Mormons, which was restored through a, a fictitious uh, priesthood restoration. That's all bunk too. So, but in the end, there was no authoritative ministerial priesthood. And I'm just going to end with that. I don't have to go on and, and dissect, even though I've got three or four pages here to, to keep talking about this. Uh, I should have thought about this. It's too long. And all it does is regurgitate a bunch of stuff that's nonsense if you just start off with the fact that, Michael, there was no priesthood. The priesthood was of Aaron. Aaron and Jesus couldn't even go into the Holy of Holies when he was walking around. And he became our ultimate high priest. He didn't even come from that tribe. It was that old school. It was a different deal. That was done for. All right? On to more, on to more lessons from Chomsky as we assign his insights to government and big business and major media outlets. I really hope that none of you will go running into the hills denying Christ and embrace Marxism as a result of me talking about him. That's a concern I have. And Michael, you might need to turn off your, your computer right now in case I'm influencing you, all right? In any case, last week I presented 10 key principles that Chomsky offers as a means to understand how the few at the top work very hard to govern the masses and to keep them in control. The first principle is to reduce democracy. And we have talked about why the few, the less than the one-tenth of one percent in the world want to reduce democracy. They want to do that because if they don't, it takes power from them and they want to be in control. The question we have to ask ourselves relative to this point is in Christianity is should Christianity be considered a democracy if we're going to apply Chomsky's rules to the faith to learn? If so, why? And if not, why? I have to admit that while I think that there are some at the top heap of the churches that want to keep all forms of democracy at bay, Christianity, Christianity writ large is not a democracy by any means. It's a monarchy. And it ought to be seen as an absolute monarchy with Christ at the throne and God governing by the Spirit through the lives of his subjects. So it's a monarchy. So, it's, uh, so even though uh, uh, Chomsky's all about democracy being lost, being lost through the principles he talks about, when we apply it to the, to the faith, uh, we're a monarchy. So it's not a direct application. But unfortunately, the idea of Christ being our monarch and our king and us having only allegiance to him is too far-fetched for the religionists of our age. I have had people, I've had pastors tell me, they've said, well, who are you, who are you uh, accountable to? Who do you respond to? I say, I respond to Christ. Oh, that's a cop-out. They've literally said that. That's a cop-out. 
I mean, he's my monarch. What they want to do is insert themselves as princes and judges and priests in between him so that they can help control the masses, the few, to get, reap the benefits and keep everybody else as silent spectators, not participants. So uh, it, it's really interesting that within the faith, if you tell somebody, I, res- I am answerable to God, that for them, that's not enough. And they'll say, oh no, what a cop out. I'm telling you, I've heard it with my own ears from pastor's lips. So the first principle doesn't exactly fit from Chomsky to the institutional church. The church is a monarchy, but nevertheless, the few within it seeking power do all they can to keep the masses still under their control. So we have to talk about elements of democracy to understand it. The second principle Chomsky explains, and we're going to cover it quickly tonight, is shape ideology. Shape ideology. In the face of more and more special interest groups rising up in the 1960s. Okay, it was a time of rebellion, the 60s, and and special interest groups are popping up. Women are starting to say, hey, you know, we we have some rights. Of course, they were doing that with the suffragettes many years before, but women started popping up. Uh, Black people started popping up and saying, hey, wait a minute. People started saying, hey, these special interest groups were starting to make demands to have an equal voice and to have equal treatment and equal respect. In essence, they wanted more democratization, not less. Remember that. They wanted more of a voice in what is happening in their lives, not less. The powers that be on the right and on the left. And Chomsky admits this is one thing I like about him is he is unbiased in his assessment of things. And he criticizes the right as radically as he criticizes the left. He puts them both out there. And they did studies on what they can do to help lessen democracy, all right? In conclusions, both sides essentially came to the idea that they needed to reshape ideology and uh, as a means to keep the rabble in line. It's true, and while they were not so interested in... Uh, helping, they were more interested in control. So Chomsky says that on the right and the left, there was, quote, an enormous, concentrated, coordinated business collective beginning in the 1970s to try and beat back the egalitarian. Egalitarianism means when people, egalitarianism, everybody has equal rights. Everybody should be seen as having the same rights. That's egalitarianism. So he says in the 1970s, there was a great collective by the businesses to try to beat back the egalitarian that went right on through the Nixon years. He continues, over on the right, and now he quotes, you see the famous Powell Memorandum sent to the Chamber of Commerce, a major business lobby by the Supreme Court Justice Powell, warning them that, these are quotes, business is losing control over society and that something has to be done to counter these forces. Chomsky concludes, it was a call for business to use their resources to carry out a major offensive to beat back the democratizing wave. All right? Now, as I said, what I love about Chomsky is he, I think he's even-handed, And he adds over on the liberal side, so that was the conservative side, the Powell report, 
we have something exactly similar. That's a quote from him, exactly similar. The first major report on the liberal side of the Trilateral Commission is concerned with this too. And this report of the Trilateral Commission is called the Crisis of Democracy. So you can look these things up and see what happened. Chomsky says the Trilateral Commission is liberal internationalists and their flavor is pretty much indicated by the fact that they staffed the Carter administration. In any case, they were also appalled by the, quote, democratizing tendencies of the 60s. They hated it. They couldn't stand it because people were stopping from being just spectators and they were suddenly becoming participants. And when that happens, the few lose their power. And they thought they had to react to it. Listen to what Chomsky says, quote, they were concerned that there was an excess of democracy. That is a quote taken straight out of the Trilateral Commission. Saw it with my own eyes. They're concerned about an excess of democracy. Then he goes on and says that, quote, previously passive and obedient special interest groups were beginning to try and politicize and enter into the political arena. And the Trilateral Commission said that they imposed too much pressure on the state. It can't deal with these pressures from people wanting a voice. So they had to, quote, return to passivity and become depoliticized. I know this is heavy stuff. Hang with me. We're going to get to its application to the faith. So what they essentially were saying was, women's, get your shoes off them damn feet, get back in the kitchen and start cooking my dinner. Black folk, get to the back of the bus. Fags, come back into the closet. That's what they were saying. All the special interests, get back to where you belong so we can continue to have our power. I know, it sounds radical. The final point Chomsky makes about this liberal agenda is he says that they were particularly concerned about young people. They were getting too free, too independent. Listen, and the way the Trilateral Commission put it is, quote, there is a failure on the part of the schools, the universities, and the churches which are the institutions responsible for indoctrination of the young. And Chomsky says that line, the indoctrination of the young, is not something I made up. It's something they use. So now we start to see what's happened with the faith. We start to see the, the machinations that are moving it without us even knowing. We don't even see it. We just want to preach and see Jesus. We just want to understand, hey, I'm forgiven of my sin. I want to be happy with God. Let me go on and live my life. No, 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 no. That's the branches, brothers and sisters. We're hacking at the root, and I know it's heavy. Chomsky goes on and points out that the Trilateral Commission fails to pick on business. Why? He says because they're not a special interest group. Business is the general uh, interest group, and they have the power and run the show. Business, he says doesn't need to be subdued. In other words, they just need the special interest groups to do the subduing. Uh, to, that they just need the special interest groups to be subdued. 
So how does this all apply to churches? Let's wrap this time up of uh, reshaping ideology. I believe reading the Bible, reading church history, early church fathers, reading what Paul said even in his day, even among us now, I believe the reshaping of Christian ideology began while the apostles were still alive. They were saying, hey, it's crumbling around us as we speak. It is already getting ugly as we talk, okay? And, uh, but they were able to keep it under wraps by the power of the Holy Spirit, which was very powerful and present there. And I think that once, jied, uh, once, John, jied? once John died, or uh, I'm speaking a new language. I just combine everything. Once, jied, died, once John died or was changed in a twinkling of an eye, I think the reshaping of ideology within the faith exploded. And I contend that the reshaping of simple Christian commands, believe that God so loved us, he sent his son, and love one another as he commanded. Just, just, just go by that. Begin to quiffly, quiffly. That's not a really nice word. That's a com- combined word too, but begin to quickly. That was a comment from our peanut gallery, as it were. I shouldn't have accepted that drink he gave me before. Just kidding. Uh, Anyway, he began to quickly explode. Um, That's all the gospel was. God so loved us, he sent his son. Believe on him. And guess what? That Holy Spirit within you is going to help you to love others. Let the Spirit do it. But it, it became just a monster. And then we see what happened over the time. We see the shaping of uh, ideology happens with Constantine. He comes in and he makes it a national religion. And pretty soon, believers aren't even in there. Just people who want to have a, a position in society are in there in the faith. And we enter into the dark ages. And we enter into horrible, horrible stuff that's done in the name of Christ for a thousand years. I mean, this was all done by the few who wanted to control the masses using religion. I believe that there were, have always been men and women who are truly of the faith, who really did just believe in Jesus and who really did love. And I think that they were not part of that uh, group. I think they were the ones who stood up and said, I'm not going to be part of that. And they lost their lives because of it. I mean, just read about the Protestant Reformation. People were losing their lives over what they believed. It's just unbelievable how everything that, that Chomsky points out about big business and, and all the other stuff is absolutely parallel in the history of religion. And of course, there are exceptions to these corruptions, but in my estimation, uh, this reshaping of ideology has been at the heart of institutional religion from the get-go. And if not initially, inevitably. And if not initially in a, in a given church, inevitably. We started a church called Campus. We called it Christian Anarchist Meeting to Prayerfully Understand Scripture. We're a small group. We meet on Sundays. Some people come to the show. We have a very low-key group. Great people. They, they come and go. They love the Lord. But in time, it inevitably will go the same way if it continues to exist and grow. It happens to institutions. So thus far, we've discussed the need to reduce democracy and tonight to reshape ideology. Next week, we're going to examine uh, attempts, in Chomsky's word, to redesign the economy. 
and that's the third principle that he operates on. It's gonna take us a, a few weeks to lay all this out, and then once we lay it all out, that's when we're going to jump back and we're gonna start to look at specifics about what's in the faith now to, uh, that facilitates all these things Chomsky says operates big business, corporations, big government, and multi-large uh, media uh, uh, outlets. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413. We have Charlie from West Valley on line one, which we'll get to after this spot. Oh, wait, one second, Delaney. After Charlie, we're going to take the calls. If there's no calls, we're killing it. This is part of the espresso, new espresso heart of the matter. Okay, let's go to the spot. Christian anarchists, meaning to prayerfully understand scripture. After everything has been said and done, we find this last acronym far too limiting. After all, he is probably the only Christian anarchist in North America. So after 10 years, Campus, today, and hopefully for the decades to come, should be known as Christian Meeting to Prayerfully Understand Scripture. Come as you are. All right, let's go to Charlie. Charlie, you are on Heart of the Matter, brother. Oh, thanks for taking my call. So much to say uh, to your <laughs> your listeners tonight. I'd like to say a couple of things to him. Um, first of all, uh, he didn't happen to mention the Melchizedek priesthood, which Christ is the high priest and will be forever. I think that comes out of uh, Hebrews, right? Yep. Uh, 9 and 7, or 7 through 9. Um, so that kind of puts a damper on the on the <laughs> his uh, priesthood order, and then also I would just like to have Mark. I believe it was Mark that wrote to the email when you mentioned Michael. tonight uh, when Christ turned around and said to Peter, "What is it to you that he exists until I return?" Has he ever stopped to really, I, that quote or that scripture turned my head so fast out of all of the institutional religions when not anybody that I knew out of the five years I went to church and was into the institutions could answer. Hmm. And that led me down a path of truth that only the Spirit could open my eyes to. So I, I challenge your listeners tonight, have them answer that question to you on the air or whatever in the email, 
answer that question. What did Christ mean when he said that? Excellent, Charles. Thank you so much, my brother. You're welcome. Love what you're doing. God Thanks. bless. Bye-bye. And I will add, uh, also, what did Jesus mean when he told the apostles, I'm telling you, you will not go through all of Judea before I return. I want to know that too. You will not get through. You'll go town to town. You're going to go out there. But I'm telling you, you're not going to get to all of it before I, I return. That's a, a scripture. Those two ones, what Charlie said, what I said, I, we want answers to those questions. Those of you who are uh, uh, out there and writing the emails of criticism, etc. We don't have any more calls. Dawn's away.